Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Jenny Williams. Jenny is a professor of economics at the University of Melbourne. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Today, we're going to talk about your research on electronic monitoring as an alternative to prison. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Oh, well, I have worked my whole career, which is quite long because I won't tell you when I graduated, a long time ago. You can look (laughs) me up if you're really that keen. But I work in the area of the economics of risky behaviours. And so mostly substance use and crime. So I like to study people's foibles. I think that's what makes them most interesting. And so my expertise is in using data on individuals, which could be either administrative data or survey data, to conduct causal analysis to better understand individuals' choices and then how their choices can be shaped by policies. And what's so interesting about doing research on crime and substance use is that a lot of people, including policymakers, have really strong opinions about policies related to these behaviours. And they're not necessarily grounded in evidence. So there's there's a lot of opportunity to contribute to building a sort of robust causal evidence base to hopefully enable policymakers to make better informed choices and improve policy design. And in terms of working in the economics of crime, I've been interested in this area since graduate school and my dissertation was actually sought to build on Becker and Ehrlich's models of crime by including social capital because I could see how useful Becker's model was about creating levers to alter people's behaviour by changing the relative price of behaviours but I felt that there was things left out of the model that are also very important for determining people's choices. And so I drew on the social capital literature from criminology, Lab and Sampson in particular, and, and Jonathan Coleman. So, of course, my dissertation, the work I did for my dissertation predates the availability of administrative data. And the data I used was from the 1958 Philadelphia birth cohort study. That was just the most amazing collection of data of individuals, everyone born in Philadelphia in 1958, and it contained self-reports on criminal behaviour. So that's sort of what I I started in crime in grad school, and that's what my thesis was on. But after grad school, I kind of moved from crime to drugs and became very interested in decisions regarding drug use and policies around drug use. But I've always sort of dabbled a bit in crime. And that's sort of how I came across Don Weatherburn, who's a super interesting guy who until recently led the Bureau of Crime Statistics in New South Wales in Australia. And we stayed in contact over various things. And at one point, he wrote to me and asked for my advice about something he was looking at. And that was the work on electronic monitoring. And so when he he asked me a question, an econometrics question, I said, oh, send me the data, Don, let me have a look. And we just went from there. And look, Don Weatherburn has just the most excellent nose for important policy relevant questions and the data to answer them when it comes to criminal justice in Australia. And here's the data that the Bureau of Crime Statistics that he was in charge of collecting and providing is just exemplary. It's just really, really good quality. And with regards to the question of electronic monitoring, he really picked a really good question because prison populations were increasing a lot in New South Wales where he's based and electronic monitoring has been used for like over 30 years all over the world and it's really a credible alternative for imprisonment. And well, there's a lot of evidence questioning the idea of whether imprisoning offenders at the scale that's currently done 
reduces criminal behaviour. And so if sending offenders to prison doesn't reduce the likelihood they re-offend, and given the high cost of imprisoning offenders and their families and the communities that they live in, it's really worth considering alternatives. And as far as electronic monitoring goes, it's been used a lot. So it's natural to wonder whether it might be in a, a viable alternative to incarceration, but there's really not much causal evidence around it. And so it just seemed like a ripe, low-hanging kind of fruit project, given the data that Don had uh, at his disposal through the Bureau of Crime Statistics and his knowledge of the criminal justice system. It just seemed like a really good project to become involved in. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I totally agree. There is shockingly little evidence on this, which is uh, why I was so excited to see your paper. So your paper, the one we're talking about today, is titled Can Electronic Monitoring Reduce Reoffending? As you said, it's co-authored with Don Weatherburn. Uh, it's also been published in the Review of Economics and Statistics. And in this paper, you consider how sentencing nonviolent offenders to electronic monitoring instead of prison affects their likelihood of being charged with new offenses in the future. So let's start with some background. What is electronic monitoring and how is it typically used in the criminal justice system? Well, electronic monitoring is also known as tagging. So electronic monitoring is a practice of putting an electronic transmitter physically, like a bracelet worn on an ankle or wrist on an offender to monitor their location remotely. Sometimes that's outsourced to private companies that, um, and the criminal justice sector can rent the actual devices or sometimes they buy them and, and they do the monitoring themselves. So the idea is that offenders are typically required to stay in a specific location, typically their home, and they are monitored to ensure that they do so with an electronic device. So it's typically used in conjunction with a requirement to stay at home, um, although the conditions of electronic monitoring can include uh, attending pre-agreed activities such as, you know, work or attending doctor's appointments, but pretty much they have to stay at home under electronic monitoring. But there are, so that's sort of if it's used as an alternative to home detention. It's also used as a form of early release, as a condition of bail, or for pre-trial detention. So it doesn't, sometimes it can just be used in conjunction with uh, like a curfew. So people just have to be at home, for example, between 7am and 7pm. So it's just a way of monitoring individuals to ensure that they comply with these, the requirements. And it means that they're, because they're staying at home, it's not costing the public to house them, feed them and clothe them and, and the supervision costs are, are much lower. Um, but it does reduce their um, liberty when it's used um, as an alternative to incarceration. It's sort of there's a lot of um, checking and other requirements put on the offenders. And so it's sort of like minimum security prison with day release, for example, is how to think of it. Got it. And then and then how is electronic monitoring used in New South Wales specifically? And I guess also how long has it been used there? Oh, well, the program that I evaluate has been available in New South Wales since 1997, and it's designed to be an alternative to prison for less serious nonviolent offenders. And the goals of the program are to divert people from the prison system and to rehabilitate them. 
so as with other electronic monitoring programs, this program that Don and I evaluate involves offenders serving their sentence in the community rather than in prison, but with restricted freedom of movement. So offenders, yeah, they live at home, either alone or with their family, and they're not permitted to leave their home except when approval is given by the supervising community officer for activities like work, education, intervention programs, drug treatment, for example, or medical appointments. And the activities are scheduled on a weekly basis, but the compliance is really tight. It's considered a breach of their conditions if they're late home, because if there's a train strike, it's really, really tight. Well, it's investigated as a breach and then a committee will decide whether it's actually considered a breach. So their movement to the extent that they can leave the home is tightly restricted and monitored. They basically have to be at home. They're called throughout the night to check that they're there. And so if you, women who have babies or small children it was a nightmare because you get your baby to sleep and they get a telephone call because the program I evaluate is before you know GPS tracking so they were there was just a device to check that they came into their home and and when they went in and out it kind of beeped to let the monitoring company know people think oh these people are staying at home they can drink they can party they can hang out with their friends no they're not allowed to drink or take drugs they're subject to drug testing so that it's very restrictive if they're out at work, there's visits by field out in the field by their um, supervising um, communities correction officers. So their behaviour is very tightly supervised. And as I mentioned, the program also has a rehabilitation component. And so all aspects of the offender's life is taken into consideration in designing this, the offender-specific programs. And so they take into consideration family issues, family parental responsibilities, drug and alcohol use. So offenders might be expected to be employed or undertake vocational training. They're required to undertake counselling or other programs to address personal issues, which is often drug and alcohol related. And importantly, Offenders serving sentences under electronic monitoring are supported in rehabilitation by a high rate of face-to-face contact with supervising officers. And those officers liaise closely with supporting community agencies. It's interesting as I, I think we're used to thinking of the main alternatives if you're sentenced as being prison or something like probation or community supervision, where there's, you know, you don't have this like GPS monitor, electronic monitoring, but you might have all the same meetings required. In theory, what you're describing, you could imagine having in a community supervision or probation program. I think of electronic monitoring as basically being in between those two things. It's like probation, but you have your liberty is much more restricted and they really keep track of where you are. Is that the way to think about it? Well, that's true. So if you don't comply with the requirement to stay, well, they actually have to stay at home. They don't Mm -hmm. have liberty. I think that if you those are other programs that you mentioned, like probation. I think they have freedom of movement. They do, yes. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a huge distinction. And when mm-hmm. you read, you know, about people who talk about their own experience, they find it very challenging to stay at home and be restricted in that way. So, I, and I think that we've all experienced that with yeah. COVID. Right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's it is it is quite challenging. Mm-hmm. And if you don't comply, they're easily detected. Also, Mm -hmm. with electronic monitoring, the supervisor, there's an awful lot of face-to-face interaction with the supervisor who supports them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's much more of a supportive kind of arrangement. And if they breach, if they fail a drug test, the chances are rather than write it up as a breach, which could have them sent back to prison because they've breached the term of their agreement, 
they could be placed in inpatient drug and rehabilitation to assist them and support them. So I kind of think of it as it's rehabilitation that's very supported. And so if they fall over or face challenges, which they're going to do, there's people who can help them navigate those challenges. Okay, interesting. So as people are probably getting a sense for, there are several dimensions to this program. So, so let's just go through what the various ways are that electronic monitoring is different from prison, which is the alternative you're going to be comparing it to here. In other words, what mechanisms should we have in mind for why an electronic monitoring sentence might affect someone's outcomes? So the big difference, I think, between electronic monitoring in prison is that in, with prison, you're removed from the community and you're all of, you have no control over your movements or, or, or your diets. You have no autonomy, no liberty, no freedom. And that is unpleasant, as we've all experienced under COVID. So we know that that's, that's a huge deterrent effect there. So prison has this huge deterrent effect on reoffending, whereas electronic monitoring you're, at least you're in your own home, it has a less deterrent effect. And so the deterrent effect is specific. It's saying, I've experienced this, I don't want to experience this in the future. However, while prison does have this mechanism, this strong specific deterrence effect that will reduce reoffending, it turns out in the literature that that's not all that's going on because it's not necessarily clear to the extent to which that effect dominates other mechanisms. And those other mechanisms things like, well, when you are in prison, you're hanging out with a bunch of other people who have ex expertise in crime. So you're able to build your criminal networks and your criminal capital. When you're home detention, you're not permitted to have those kind of interactions. Those interactions are prohibited. So you are not able to build your criminal capital. So it's less criminogenic from that regard. Just being placed in prison allows you to be better at committing crime, which means you might be better at evading crime also. But with home detention or electronic monitoring, while your freedom is restricted, you're kept living within the community. And not only are you not interacting with other criminals, you have programs which involve work or employment. So if you aren't able to find a job, you are required to undertake training programs to increase your employability uh, and build your skills and connections to more, you know, legitimate institutions. And you live with your family, maintain those connections. You are required to address other things that might contribute to your offending. It might be anger management, drugs, substance use. And all of these, these forces that act to re restrain your offending were, you know, uh, a balancing off, uh, balancing out perhaps a smaller specific deterrence. So the question of whether or why electronic monitoring might lead to lower offending than prisons boils down to the question of the relative size of the net effect of specific deterrence and factors related to criminal and legitimate networks and ties that you really build and develop under electronic monitoring, which you're not able to do. In fact, they're weakened and, and broken in well when you're sent to prison. But it's an empirical question as to what dominates specific deterrence or these positive network um, and social ties that you develop under EM. That's what the paper seeks to address. Um, we can't kind of pass out the different effects. We can only measure the net effect. And that's what we're doing. Yeah. I also found it really interesting in the paper you mentioned that so there are obviously a lot of these rehabilitative programs, drug treatment or so on that one might 
that might be included in someone's electronic monitoring sentence. Those programs are also available at most prisons, but there's no incentive or there's no way to require people to engage in that programming while they're incarcerated. But there's either, you know, if you're on electronic monitoring, I guess you either engage in it or you go to prison. And so there's a real incentive to actually do the things you're supposed to do or just something else about the program that um, they're actually able to require this, this engagement in these real rehabilitative programs. And that also just seemed like a really useful distinction here that is sort of another reason to be interested in these programs. Yes, it's it's true in prisons in New South Wales, if your sentence is greater than six months long, you have available um, pro- rehabilitative programs, but they're voluntary. And I think another issue is that they're not in the world that you're going to have to live in post-prison. And so once you're out, if you encounter problems, yes, if you rehearsed or practice skills, they're available for you. But if they don't work or you forget and panic or you make a mistake with electronic monitoring, you know, you actually have people there to help you navigate the real world when you're actually facing these problems. And I think that's a bit of a difference that doing things in theory and practice as anyone who's ever done any applied econometrics research would know, you know, in theory, you have an instrument in practice. It might be theoretically a great instrument, but still might not work in in, in practice. So there's a difference between theory and practice. And I think that the two distinctions, one between um, rehabilitation in prison and um, under electronic monitoring is that it's something that you can volunteer, you can choose or elect to do in prison. With electronic monitoring, it's a condition that you have to agree to with electronic monitoring. And if you don't comply, then it's a breach and you can be returned to prison. And the second is if learning something in theory is different from doing it, learning it and experiencing it in practice with support. And I think that that's another benefit of electronic monitoring. Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, so we'd mentioned at the outset that there isn't much research on this, uh, but there's some. So before your paper, what had we previously known about the effects of electronic monitoring? Well, I'm only aware of three papers that have studied or compared electronic monitoring to prison Mm -hmm. in terms of impacts on reoffending. And the first was set in Argentina uh, by Detella and uh, Shagratsky. I'll probably get all these names wrong. That study looked at pre-trial use of electronic monitoring in a very extreme situation where the prisons are really awful and the criminal justice system doesn't work terribly well. And also it was available to anyone, people who raped or murdered. It was so it wasn't it wasn't targeted. And it was in pre-trial, but in a very extreme circumstance, which isn't very similar to Western countries, I wouldn't think. But it's a, a so it was such an exciting study, such novel, innovative study. But as I mentioned, it was available for all crimes. This program, but they found that electronic monitoring reduced recidivism by between eleven and twenty-three percentage points relative to prison. So they found it was effective even in this very extreme um, setting, and then. So that's at a pre-trial um, using electronic monitoring before people come to trial. So they've just been charged with a crime. And now there's um, Olivia Marie who evaluates the UK's use of electronic monitoring and there it's used as what's referred to as back-end or early release alternative. 
And in that setting, prisoners have to agree to a curfew. So they have to be at home between 7pm and 7am. So it's a bit different because people don't have to stay at home all the time. But even so, they found it reduced uh, recidivism by about six percentage points relative to imprisonment after one year on electronic monitoring. Now, there's another study which evaluates piloting of electronic monitoring in France, and it's the most similar to the context I study because it's a front-end alternative, and by front-end, I mean it's an internal alternative to imprisonment so they rather than spending your sentence in prison you spend it under electronic monitoring uh, in your own home so they evaluated the the French program and once again it allowed weapons charges and sexual assault so it's slightly different to my setting because it did allow these violent offences and I, I point this out because when I think of evaluating programs I want the programs to be relevant to policymakers and I imagine trying to talk to a policymaker and convince them of something and so I was a bit surprised that it, it included weapons and sexual charges uh, in who qualified for this program but they in the French setting electronic monitoring was found to reduce recidivism by six to seven percentage points relative to prison after five years so that's a, quite a long-term impact and so that percentage point change translates to 11% reduction in recidivism. So that's have they ever offended after five years. So all the studies that I'm aware of, those three that occurred before my study, they all found that electronic monitoring reduced reoffending compared to incarceration in prisons. Yeah. So why didn't we have more than three studies? <laughs> what do you think of uh, as being the main challenges or hurdles for researchers like yourself when approaching this question? Is Has this mostly been a data issue or mostly an identification issue or is it both? Well, I have to say data, you have to be able to have data. And so, uh, well, both data and identification. So prior to the advent of these beautiful administrative data that um, have become increasingly available, I mean, it would be very hard to evaluate these programs using survey data. So you do need high-quality individual linked data, and that's why the Argentinian study was so impressive. They went in there and, and actually transcribed handwriting records. They actually went in there and collected mm -hmm. all that information. That was, that was just stunning. The subsequent papers have had access to administrative data and, and indeed one was doing an evaluation. But in addition to having access to administrative data, the challenge is identifying the causal impact because when people, when judges are selecting candidates for electronic monitoring, they're choosing people who they think are a low risk of reoffending because they don't want to be on the front cover of newspapers saying they <laughs> released someone who's now gone and been, you know, mass murdered people. So they're really looking to select candidates who they believe are low risk of reoffending. So if you just compare the reoffending rates for the group who serves their sentence under electronic monitoring and the group that serves their sentence under prison, you, of course, expect to find lower reoffending amongst electronic monitoring people because they were chosen because the the judge observes something about them, extenuating circumstances surrounding their offending or their remorse, something about them that led the, ju the judge to believe they'd be less likely to reoffend. So you can't just compare reoffending amongst those who serve EM electronic monitoring sentences and those who send who those who serve prison sentences. But another kind of thing that's a bit tricky is when you talk about evaluating electronic monitoring, electronic monitoring is used in a lot of different ways. So you have to be really clear about how it's being used because it could be a condition of bail, early release, pre-trial. So 
it's not a single well-defined intervention and it's not applied to a well-defined set of offenders. As I mentioned, it's been used for just anyone in Argentina, uh, whereas in Australia, for example, it's just used for non-violent offenders. So nothing's very homogeneous. But in the setting that I'm looking at, it's used for non-violent offenders and I'm looking at it as an um, alternative, direct alternative to imprisonment because it's a, a front end. You know, people, um, it's whether you go to prison or you serve that term in your home under electronic monitoring. And then to measure the causal effect, you're going to use the as if random assignment of cases to judges in New South Wales as a natural experiment. So tell us a bit about how the court system there works and in particular, how cases are assigned to judges. Oh, okay. So this is where Don was like fabulous, <laughs> you know, because I, I was like, it doesn't come with the administrative data. And so he was really good at learning about this. And if I had questions, he would go to like the chief magistrate and he would ask. So I've got it from the horse's mouth by a Don. So the idea is if you're charging a cr- with a crime in New South Wales, your case is going to be heard in a court in the jurisdiction in which you committed the crime. Now, in terms of I'm confining my analysis to Sydney because that's sort of where EM was mostly available in New South Wales. So in Sydney, Sydney's a huge city. It's the most popular city in um, Australia. It's the capital of New South Wales. It's where the Sydney Opera House is, which you might know. It's a big icon. But so in Sydney, courts are typically multi-court complexes, which means there are multiple courts located together. And each court has several courtrooms, and in every courtroom there's a judge hearing a case. Now, in terms of how cases are allocated to judges, there's a coordinating judge in each complex, and they are looking to allocate cases to courtrooms, and they do this to kind of share the workload as evenly as possible. So every week they look to see who's um, available, who's not on leave, who's, you know, not in the country doing like the circuits for the courts in, uh, outside of the city. And looking at who's available, the coordinating judge prepares a weekly roster to inform judges of which courts they'll be sitting in in that week. But daily allocations to courtrooms at a multi-court complex aren't published till the day before the case is heard. So there's no scope for defendants to influence the choice of judge and there's no scope for judges to pick and choose cases. And there's very little notice about um, in, in advance of who's going to be sitting where hearing what cases. So these features mean that, you know, within the pool of available judges, the assignment of judge to case within a court complex is effectively random. Awesome. Yeah, we're always happy when we find uh, situations like this. Okay, so what are the possible case outcomes and the types of cases you're looking at and who's eligible for sentencing to electronic monitoring? Right, so when sentencing a guilty offender, the judge first has to decide whether a custodial sentence is required. So I'm looking at um, cases where the judge has decided a custodial sentence is required. And if that's the case, then the judge decides the duration of the custodial term. That's sort of how sentencing works. Now, electronic monitoring is available as an alternative means of serving a custodial sentence. So an alternative to serving it in prison is serving at home if three criteria are met. The first is that the sentence length is no more than 18 months. The second is the offence that the judge is hearing is not related to violent or threatening behaviour. And the third condition is the offender's criminal history must not include violent or threatening offences. So basically, it's available, 
who's eligible? Well, people who have no history of violent offences, who are not before the chart, the court currently on a violent offences, and the judges determined that their offence should be punished with a custodial sentence of no more than 18 months. And then how exactly are you using that assignment of cases to judges that we talked about before to measure the causal effect of sentencing someone to electronic monitoring? Right. So the way that we disentangle the effect of judges selecting low risk of reoffending people from the actual causal impact of electronic monitoring is, as you said, exploiting the fact that judges work at courthouses are randomly assigned to cases. But the other thing that's really interesting and the, and, and the reason that random assignment to judges has any ability to identify a causal impact is that judges differ in their preference over punishments. So judges aren't, you know, like uniform, they're people and they have taste preferences and beliefs. Some judges don't like to use electronic monitoring. They just won't touch it. They don't believe it's a good um, punishment for these offences. And other judges do. They think it is appropriate for some offenders. And so it's this different it's the fact that who hears your charge is randomly assigned and that these judges actually just have different tastes over punishment that's what we're leveraging so for example suppose that you and I have committed an offense and we're going to court today and we look pretty much identical we've got the same offending history and the current charges that we're facing are the same Your case is heard by Judge A, who is known to not like using electronic monitoring, and my case is heard by Judge B, who doesn't mind using it when they they think it's appropriate. Then just by virtue of the fact that my case is, I'm randomly assigned a courtroom, and in that courtroom I find Judge B, I'm more likely than you are to receive an electronic monitoring sentence. This is just due to chance that I happen to to be in this courtroom and Judge B is assigned to that courtroom. And it's this randomness in the assignment of electronic monitoring, which results from um, judges having different tastes and preferences over punishment types and randomness in which judge we each see, that allows us to identify the impact of, it's that randomness. It's not to do with your proclivity to reoffend or my likelihood of reoffending, it's just who hears the case. So that allows us to separate out whether I'm more likely to offend or less likely to offend from the fact that I'm just by luck got a judge who, who doesn't mind using electronic monitoring. It means I'm more likely to get electronic monitoring and I can use this to identify the causal effect of electronic monitoring um, on reoffending. Amongst those who would have served their sentence in prison, you know, had they face a judge who is less inclined to use electronic monitoring. Okay, let's talk about these amazing data that Don was able to get for you. <laughs> uh, what data do you have available for all of this? Right, actually, I should say that um, the Bureau of Crime Statistics makes these um, data available to anyone that uh, applies. Oh. You have to get ethics approval, but it's you can apply. Lots of people can use it. It's not it, They make it available to everyone. They have produced these beautiful databases um, that are available to researchers to use. So, yes, the data is super, super neat. Uh, we use detailed individual-level linked administrative data from courts, prisons, and corrective services for New South Wales. Now, the database is called the Reoffending 
database or ROD for short, and it was provided by uh, the Bureau of Crime Statistics. And so, as I mentioned, the reoffending database links individual case data from all criminal courts in New South Wales with prison data. And then information on judges was not available in, in the data set when we started this project, but it is now. So for this project, I asked Don and, and he was able to get the information on the judge overseeing each case. And then that data was linked to the reoffending database. As I mentioned, now that's a standard variable in the ROD data set. Uh, the second source of data we needed was referrals from New South Wales Community and Correction Services, because before a judge can hand down a sentence of electronic monitoring, the offenders have to be assessed for suitability, and, and that assessment sort of ensures that the offenders um, are indeed eligible. And so the New South Wales Community Corrections data was provided by Corrections Research Evaluation Statistics Unit of Correction Services New South Wales. And we were really happy to receive it and it was really good of them to do that. So that was that was all done. But so the data has the most serious charge that people are being heard before the courts. So we know the crime type, whether it's for assault, negligent driving, breaking and entering, theft, fraud, all that kind of stuff. We know the offender's gender, their age. We also know the number of finalised court appearances in the five years prior to the index court appearance. So we know their offending history, which is really nice. And we also have uh, an indicator for whether the offender had any legal representation during the court case. And we know the local government area where people live. So what do these cases look like? What are the characteristics of the defendants and their charges? And how do those sentenced to electronic monitoring differ on average from those who are sentenced to prison? Well, you might be unsurprised to know the sample that we're looking at are mostly male, mm-hmm. and <laughs> 90% male, and their average age is, is around 31. Um, and the most common uh, offences are theft and traffic offences, remembering that um, th- this program is available for nonviolent offenders. And so about 25% of people in the sample are before the courts with their most serious charge being a theft. And a similar amount, about 25% are before the courts. Um, uh, They're found guilty of a traffic offence charge and that's most commonly driving without a licence. And so they're looking at a prison term um, or electronic monitoring for these traffic offences, which I was pretty surprised about. Yeah, that's a heck of a penalty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, in terms of differences between the offenders who serve their sentence under electronic monitoring versus prison, those who end up serving their sentence under electronic monitoring are more likely to have traffic offences as their most serious charge. So about close to those on EM have uh, a traffic offence as their most serious charge compared to about 20% in the prison sample. Those serving an electronic monitoring system are relatively less likely than those serving a prison sentence to have theft as their most serious charge. So about 10% on those of those on EM have theft, a theft charge as their most serious charge compared to about 25% who serve their sentence in prison. Okay. So we've got differences on average across those going to prison and those going to electronic monitoring. And then are there any differences between those whose cases are heard by the judges that like electronic monitoring versus those that don't. Right. So as you've mentioned, there are the people who have electronic monitoring as the way 
is that they serve their sentence versus prison. They have different charges. They're more likely to be uh, having a traffic charge. And so that's why we're concerned that if there's differences on observable characteristics, there might be differences on unobservable characteristics. And it's certainly the case that that's why we are using the randomization to judge who have different tastes for um, using these different punishments. So really key to what we're doing is trying to ensure that this randomization, which is the basis of our, as you mentioned, it's the basis of our instrumental variable, you don't want, you want to ensure that randomization is genuine. So there should not be differences across more harsh and more lenient judges in terms of the, the cases heard. So when we compare offenders in the same court and in the same calendar year, so in other words, controlling on court by year fixed effects, we find there isn't any difference in the observed characteristics of cases heard by more lenient and more harsh judges. And, and that's what we hope to find. This is, we can't test whether there's differences on unobservable characteristics of the offenders or the cases, but in terms of observable characteristics, after you control for court and, and year, so you, you're comparing cases that judges hear in a court in the same calendar year, we don't find any differences in observable characteristics in the cases heard between the more and less lenient judges. Awesome. Okay, and last data question, what outcomes are you most interested in? So the outcomes we're interested in are measures of reoffending. We look at reoffending at the extensive margin, which is just have you reoffended within a certain period of your case being finalized? And also reoffending at the intensive margin, which is looking at the number of new offenses that you're before the courts with a certain period after your original case, index case, was finalised. And we evaluate these outcomes six months after the original case is finalised, 12 months, 18 months, through to 10 years or 120 months after the original case is finalised. Yeah, having that 10-year follow-up is very impressive. (laughs) Makes for very pretty graphs, I will say. Um, oh, well, <laughs> but it really, it does speak to, yeah, the long run effects. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important because you don't want to just be kicking a problem down the road. We, you want to know whether it, whether it's the solution sticks. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the results. What do you find is the effect of electronic monitoring on the likelihood and number of new charges? Well, this I think is really exciting because the results show that serving a sentence under electronic monitoring reduces the probability of reoffending from 18 months after the case is heard. It's not significant prior to that, but it also reduces the number of proven charges. And this reduction is evident out to 10 years um, after the case is finalised. So, for example, just to give you some numbers to hang your hat from, so often um, in politics in Australia, they look at reoffending after 24 months. So we find that 24 months after case finalisation, there's a 21 percentage point reduction in reoffending amongst those who are sentenced to electronic monitoring. So the reduction is from 45% to 24%. Amazing. Yeah. The big effect. Yeah. Then uh, after five years, it's a 22 percentage point reduction from 69% amongst those who serve a prison sentence down to 47%. 
And by 10 years, there's still 11 percentage point reduction in reoffending amongst those who serve their sentence under electronic monitoring, but would have served their sentence under in prison had they got a different judge. So it's just huge. And then in terms of number of new offences, at the 10-year mark, we find a 45% reduction in the number of proven new offences 10 years after the initial court case was finalised. That's a cumulative number of offences is reduced by 45%. The big effects, and as you said, this is just luck of the draw. Some people got a lenient judge, a judge that likes EM, and some people got a harsh judge. This brings us to a question about compliers. So with analysis like this, the results are relevant to the type of person for whom that randomization matters, right? So for some cases, every judge is going to agree what the outcome should be, but there are going to be some where it matters which judge you get assigned to. And then we call those the compliers. So who are the compliers in your analysis? Oh, that's a really good question, Jen. The compliers are more likely than the average offender in the sample to be before the courts on a traffic charge, to be female and to not have had legal representation. So I think these results are most clearly relevant to those on traffic charges and those people on traffic charges, the majority of them are driving without a licence and or, or drink driving, but the, it's predominantly those driving without a licence. And then the other aspect of an instrumental variable analysis that people might be wondering about is the exclusion restriction. So a key assumption here is that your treatment variable, so in this case, a judge's tendency to sentence someone to electronic monitoring is correlated with the outcome only through its effect on the electronic monitoring sentence. That's the exclusion restriction. So since you have random assignment of judges to cases, we're not worried about the usual thing that judges' preferences are correlated somehow with case characteristics, but it's possible that judges might influence the cases they handle in other ways than just the electronic monitoring decision. So this exclusion restriction is impossible to test directly. This is a you know common challenge in all research, but you dig into the data a bit to consider whether it seems plausible in this setting. So tell us a bit about what you do and what you find. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's probably buried a little bit in the paper, but I think this is really <laughs> important because if you think that you're going to have lenient and harsh judges, they might be harsh not just in terms of being more likely to give in prison, but to give longer prison sentences, for example. So if that's the case, then being a harsh judge is also correlated, is also going to be picking up the fact that you're more likely to give a prison sentence and the analysis didn't control for the length of the prison sentence. So the impact we're finding might be that they're actually, the instrument might not be valid because it's really picking up stuff to do with sentence length, which has been omitted. And therefore, our heart, being a harsh judge is going to be correlated with this omitted variable and cause confounding. Our instrument won't meet the exclusion restriction because you're really picking up not just the effect of um, a sentence of electronic monitoring, but also the confounding effect of having a longer sentence. So that's my concern. Or it actually could be the other way, you know, in that if you get some judges, they might think, I'm going in, you know, hard and sharp. I'm going to get send them to prison, but a short sentence and I'm going to scare them straight. And so you have to be really worried about that judges are determining not only the, t- the manner in which the sentence is served, but the duration of the sentence. And there's variability in that too. So the way that I investigate that is that I basically 
account for sentence length and I treat it as a choice, you know, as an endogenous variable similar to whether the sentence is served under electronic monitoring in prison. I also model um, sentence length and I use the random variation generated by um, the judge that you see similar to the type of sentence, whether it's electronic monitoring, you're randomly assigned to a judge and judges have preferences over sentence length, just as they have preferences over punishment type. So I use that random variation generated by random assignment to judge and judges random variation or judge specific variation in preferences over duration of sentence to directly examine this particular violation of the exclusion restriction. And so when I uh, investigate this, I find no evidence that sentence length has any impact on reoffending after accounting for sentence type. So I'm, I'm controlling for both sentence type and sentence length, and each are being instrumented. So I'm using this um, variation generated by random assignment to judges, and they're preferences over these various dimensions of sentencing and I just find it really interesting that if once I account for the sentence type the sentence length doesn't impact on reoffending. I think that raises more questions than it answers <laughs> but it's good for you <laughs> yeah, good for the analysis, yeah, yeah but I agree super yeah. interesting finding okay so that is all your paper have any other papers related to this topic come out since you first started working on this study well, there's been lots of papers on looking at, you know, whether prison reduces reoffending, but I'm only aware of one additional paper that's comparing prison to electronic monitoring, and that's out of Norway. So there's Norway rolled out an electronic monitoring program between 2008 and 2011, and Anderson and uh, Tell in Norway, I'm probably butchering their names too, they look at how being sentenced to electronic monitoring impacts reoffending rather than being sentenced with prison. These electronic monitoring is used in Norway for sentences no more than four months, I believe. But they find that electronic monitoring reduced the two-year recidivism rate by about 15% and reduced the one-year recidivism frequency of offending by about 0.3 offences on average. But so they're just looking, yeah, out to one or two two years. But they also concur that electronic monitoring reduces reoffending. And so, what are the policy implications of your results and the other work in this area? What have the policymakers in Sydney taken from it? Uh, if you've talked with them, and and what would you tell other policymakers and practitioners who are curious about electronic monitoring? Well, I think that there's now a well-established evidence that electronic monitoring programs that divert offenders from prison, and especially those that incorporate a rehabilitative component, reduces reoffending. Now, you know, whereas France's program was a pilot, this is the program that I study is like well-established. It's been, you know, operating for like 10 years at the point that I'm, you know, where I'm evaluating it. So this is not a pilot program. It's well-established. It's operating at scale for a long duration of time. And it's a program that diverts people from prison. It's not a bail condition. It's not early release. So it provides really strong evidence that electronic monitoring is an alternative to imprisonment for nonviolent offenders in particular. 
the second takeaway that I'd really want to impress upon policymakers is that, that this reduction in reoffending it extends out to a 10-year time horizon. So the literature now establishes that reoffending is reduced at much longer durations than previously documented. And not only does it reduce reoffending at the extensive margin, that's the number of offences, but the number of offenders, but also reduces reoffending at the intensive margin. That's the number of offences. And the number of offences is reduced out to 10 years also. So the combination of the lower likelihood of reoffending and the number of new charges amongst those who are placed on electronic monitoring extended over a 10-year time period provides, I think, a really important evidence base on the potential for electronic monitoring to reduce the economic burden of crime. And am I right in recalling that electronic monitoring is in general much cheaper than sending someone to prison? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, prisons cost, you know, in Australia, right? I think it's like on the order of $100,000 a year to imprison someone. Electronic monitoring is much, much cheaper. Yeah, so you get all these benefits. You get all these benefits for less money, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's win-win, really. Yeah. It's, it's win-win. But you have to get buy-in from politicians and the judiciary mm-hmm. and Politicians don't want to be seen to be soft on crime. So even if a policy reduces crime and, and benefits society, I think you have to have, be probably quite politically brave to try and explain that to constituents. It takes a lot more words and a lot more concentration from the audience than simply saying, tough on crime, tough on crime, <laughs> yeah. which everyone kind of, you know, is like meerkats. Oh, yes, yes, tough on crime, <laughs> you know. Right, right. It's always easier um, for you know people in the community to point to a news story about one person that was released and committed murder, as you were you were suggesting earlier, um, than to see all the people that are not committing crime now because they did electronic monitoring instead of going to prison. It's just it's the latter is much less salient and harder to yeah. to explain to the public. It is because I mean it's people go to prison, come out of prison, and and commit crimes. Mm-hmm. But the point is that if you if they could have been in prison, but they were at home mm-hmm. in, instead and committed a crime, yes, it's they feel that the policy could have protected the community from that crime by sending them to prison. But what we know, what the evidence shows is, in fact, that for the next 10 years from the time of sentencing, the community is going to be experiencing more crime amongst this group of people who would be better off, uh, who who should be serving their sentence under electronic monitoring or had they served their sentence under electronic monitoring rather than prison. The concern is that if you if a judge sentences someone to electronic monitoring and they re-offend, it's easy to point to that incident, which isn't very, it doesn't occur very often, and say so that crime could have been avoided, the community could have been protected if that person had been sent to jail. However, what we know from the research is if you look at 10 years from the time of sentencing, people who serve their sentence under electronic monitoring commit fewer crimes than had they served their sentence in prison amongst this group who who serve their sentence under electronic monitoring just by chance of getting a judge who uses it. So, in fact, the the community saved, I think, about four or five crimes over a 10-year period by having the offender serve their sentence under electronic monitoring. And they're not seeing that. You don't, you don't yeah. see reporting on crimes that don't occur. <laughs> so right, exactly. It's, it, 
Exactly. It's very hard to explain to people the benefits of electronic monitoring because that's in terms of things that don't happen. Yeah. Counterfactuals, right? The counterfactual, right. Yeah. Did you present these results to folks in Sydney at all? So I presented it I presented it at a couple of different times to people who work in the criminal justice um, mm-hmm. area. First, when it was work in progress, because I wanted to make sure that my understanding of the data was correct and my interpretation of the institutional context was correct before mm-hmm. I went beating drums. And so, for example, I, I questioned, gee, look, these people are going to prison for, for traffic offences. Is that right? <laughs> um, and yes, I was assured it was. You know, they're fined and they don't pay their fines. What else are we to do? And I thought, well... You know, <laughs> I'm not sure prison is the only option, but for people who who have traffic offences. But um, so I confirmed with folks from the sector that my understanding of the institutions and data was correct. And then at the finalisation of the project, when we had written everything up, I presented it to um, people from criminal justice again uh, to share with them my results because a lot of them had been so helpful in sharing their wisdom and knowledge of the institutions with me. I wanted to make sure that they saw the results of their input and understood the the findings from the research. What was their reaction? Uh, um, They were very polite and (laughs) nice. Were they surprised? Well, I don't. No, I can't. They didn't sort of hang around. I guess they Mm. weren't academics, so they didn't really hang around to talk. It was a lunchtime seminar, so Uh it was really well attended. I was very grateful. The Bureau of Crime Statistics put on the seminar. People came. They listened. They were kind of yeah engaged. They were polite, but it wasn't like an academic seminar. People didn't hang around and chat afterwards. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And is this electronic monitoring program still in effect? Has it expanded at all? Is it smaller? What's the current status? Oh, so what is really, really crushingly disappointing from a policy perspective is that it's not much used anymore. And that's mm. the result of just a, a reorganisation within the bureaucracy administering the program. There was an election where the returning government, you know, promised to be to really try and work hard to reduce the two-year recidivism rate. And the way they were going to do that was by using electronic monitoring, um, people being released from prison, early release from prison, for example. So what happened was that the electronic monitoring program that is an alternative to prison was collected with the electronic monitoring program for those being released from from prison in terms of administration. Mm -hmm. And... As a consequence, you know, it was a one-size-fits-all approach. All offenders were considered high risk and that they had to prove that they should be allowed to have electronic monitoring. Um, So it it was a whole shift in the way it was viewed. It became administered in a more kind of punitive kind of way Mm. and they made drug and alcohol testing part of the evaluation procedure to to see if you qualified. And, of course, a lot of people would would fail that. Mm -hmm. So the recommendations um, would go that went back to the to judges was that you know judge would say can you please look at um, person A I think they'd be a good candidate for electronic monitoring the report would come back from on their suitability and say we don't think so and hmm. so judges stopped using it because they were no longer kind of on the same page in its purpose and how it should be used. So it just sort of disappeared from the landscape um, towards the end of 2007 and now it's hardly ever used, which is really unfortunate. 
Yeah, that's so sad. All right, new campaign. We need to bring it back. This is going to be, we'll try to rally the troops here to bring it back to New South Wales. Okay, last question. What's the research frontier? One of the next big questions in this area or related to this this topic that you and others will be thinking about going forward? Well, Jen, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've worked on um, substance use quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, in terms of the next big question, I'm no good at predicting the future. So I just go <laughs> where my interest takes me. So I'm a bit of uh-huh. a wanderer. And I've always been interested um, in substance use and criminal justice. And so I'm working a little bit more at the sort of intersection of those right now. I'm using beautiful administrative data. I'm working with Annalyn Brettville Jensen at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. And I'm looking at people who have entered substance use treatment in Norway. And I'm looking at, well, in particular, the impact of having to wait for access to treatment and Mm. how waiting time impacts um, a bunch of outcomes, including their criminality. And and also, you know, who they they mix with, if they're inpatient treatment, who they mix with, how that impacts their outcomes. So, yeah, I guess I'm moving more towards the bringing together these two strands of literature I really care about. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's looking at substance use and it's a mental health problem. A lot of people who enter substance use treatment um, have comorbid, you know, conditions with other mental health conditions. People who are involved with criminal justice, uh, mental health and substance users are very much overrepresented in this group. And so I think that for me, if you're really looking at reducing reoffending programs that seek to address those conditions or circumstances that might precipitate the reoffending is also a really good place to look. So I think that, you know, looking at punishments and how people are punished, where they're punished, you know, the new prisons um, are less harsh, the Norwegian prisons really do, you know, have programs which see people transition into release uh, more gradually and they, they have really good you know, results from having those sort of programs, also open programs. There's like lots of different ways of punishing people which are less punitive and are more effective at reducing reoffending, but also looking at the circumstances and situations that precipitate reoffending where interventions can be very helpful. And we know that the people with mental health problems and substance use are really high overrepresented in prison populations and offender populations more broadly. And so um, looking at this intersection is where I'm currently working. Excellent. Well, I will look forward to seeing the results from that project. Very interesting. My guest today has been Jenny Williams from the University of Melbourne. Jenny, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Jen. Thanks so much. I really enjoy being able to share this. I hope people find it interesting and I hope there's policymakers out there who want to pick it up and run with it. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. 
Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.